The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built for my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you should be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will." Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among the men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he goes according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The word of the Lord. Friends, please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. That's on page 873 of your pew Bibles. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you will, he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome. So glad that you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan, and I'm very, very grateful uh, to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, we are in the season of ordinary time, where we join with the church around the world and throughout history in asking a very simple question. What does it mean for us to embody the presence of Jesus in our place and in our time? 
And true to form, as is our practice, we are taking this question with us to the Scriptures, and this fall semester, particularly, we are going to the Old Testament book of Daniel, and we're calling this series that we're in, Faithful Presence in the City. And today we're going to examine chapter 4. And before we begin, let me say a brief prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. When you are in a group photo and it is then printed and displayed to you, what is the first thing you look for when you see it? It's yourself, right? This is true across humanity, all peoples and all times and all places places and all cultures and all societies. Everybody has this in common, whether you're kids or whether you're an adult or a grandparent, you look for yourself in the group photo. Do you look to see if your friends are smiling nicely? No. You're only looking to see if you're smiling better than them, right? Do you look to see if your mother or your father is looking elegant in the picture? No. You look to see if you are looking good in the picture. And uh, this is true for all of us. And it's, um, if you end up looking at a group photo and you scan it and you find yourself and you look weird, it's a bad group photo, right? There could be a hundred other people in the picture who all look magnificent, but if you don't look good then it should never see the light of day in public. And the problem is, uh, in the Murata family, is that um, when we take our annual family Christmas card, for some reason, my kids don't care whether I look good in the picture. Um, and so inevitably, as happens uh, nearly every year, the card that we send out to everybody is always the card where, as we're reviewing it as a family before it gets sent out, there's something in me that goes, can we not pick that one, please? Um, and yet the opinions of my uh, adolescent daughters somehow outweigh my own. And so off it goes to every human being I know on planet Earth, a picture that I'm not super happy about. Um, And this is not the first time I've been unhappy about pictures. When I was growing up, um, some of you know this, I have three younger siblings and I have a younger brother who's three years younger than me. And uh, I was taller than him for almost all of our childhood. But when I went away to college, he, without permission, grew. And when I came back, he was taller than me. And so if you look at all family photos uh, from, like, for me, age 18 through, like, 25, I am standing on my tiptoes in all of them. So the whole world will know that I'm actually taller than my brother, even though, in fact, I am not. Now, this thing that I'm describing, where we have this kind of automatic default setting that drills us in on ourselves, even to the exclusion of other people, and the fear that we have of perhaps looking embarrassing or being a disgrace or being maybe even humiliated. This is actually something that all of us come into the world uh, with kind of being hardwired into our psyche. Uh, For example, think about this. When my eldest daughter was one year old, uh, she was just learning how to walk. She toddled into the living room where a group of adults were sitting, and there was some music playing in the background, and she lost her balance as she tried to dance, and she sat down hard, like on her rear end, and all of the adults in the room laughed, and she, what? Cried. How did you know? Because it comes hardwired and built into us in our very humanity, this fear of humiliation right? It's why the teenage years are so profoundly uncomfortable for all of us because you walk around living and breathing with this crippling fear of doing something or saying something or looking embarrassing and being humiliated. And it's why uh, when I was in high school and I missed the penalty kick for our soccer team in the state tournament and our team lost, 
It took me months to get over that. And actually, as I'm telling you right now, I'm realizing I'm probably still not over it by virtue of the fact that I'm still talking about it. The stakes as we get older just get higher, don't they? I mean, especially if you experience any measure of success in life. The more you succeed and the better you do, the higher the stakes get, and therefore, the further you have to fall. And the greater your pride, the greater your fear of humiliation. And I think this is worth talking about because you and I are living in this moment in history when so many leaders and celebrities are falling, right? Our society seems to enjoy a certain kind of ravenous glee in quickly elevating a person to near divine status and then just as quickly ripping that person down and feasting on the juicy flesh of their failure, right? It's as if we all know somewhere deep inside ourselves that human beings are meant for glory, this glorious leadership, and therefore when other people fail us, we feel right and justified in condemning them. And listen, the story of the Bible actually speaks directly to our current cultural moment in that dynamic. The Bible has a lot to say about this because the Bible tells a story of human beings in the dawn of creation made to be these kind of vice regents in the world that are ruling under God and over the world. This position of glorious leadership is given to humanity. But human beings, if you know the story of the Bible in Genesis chapter three, grasp for more than what they were given and it actually casts the whole world into what Christians call the shadow of sin. And we see this play out through the story of universal human history as told in the Old Testament, from the Tower of Babel to King Saul to Haman in the book of Esther. And there's a whole long list that I don't have time to get into, but we see this in leaders that are raised up and then leaders that fall. And in Jesus, by the time we get to the New Testament, we meet one who stands unique in human history because he's the only one who has every reason to be proud and yet chooses humility. And the story of the Bible concludes, culminates in the very end, where the divine image of God and humanity is restored and human beings are indeed made to be like God in the very end of the biblical story, but it's given as a gift that is received, not a title that is grasped. This is the story of universal human history told in the Bible. And in that, we have our text today, Daniel chapter 4, which has got to be one of the strangest stories in the entire Bible. In fact, I had someone was asking me earlier this week, like, I know you're doing a series on Daniel. Are you going to do Daniel 4? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And they said, I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> but here we are. Maybe this is a mistake. Um, one of the strangest chapters in the Bible, in part because it wasn't written by Daniel. Did you notice that? This was written by King Nebuchadnezzar. As part of the Christian Bible, we have a chapter in a book written by a pagan Babylonian king. Very interesting. Here's the situation. Nebuchadnezzar, this king of the Babylonian empire, has had a second dream. We encountered one of his first dreams earlier uh, in the story, but now he's had another dream and this one has freaked him out. It's a dream about a tree getting chopped down and the dream frightens him. So he sends for all of his high-ranking court officials who have been trained in dream interpretation because that's what you do in Babylon. And they kind of can't make heads or tails of it. And so he calls for a man named Belteshazzar, also known as Daniel. And Daniel hears the dream and he understands the dream and its interpretation, but it scares him too, because it is a dangerous thing to tell the emperor of the world bad news. Surely, over uh, the course of the prophet Daniel's career, he has seen other people attempt to tell King Nebuchadnezzar bad news and they probably have not lived to do it a second time. And it would be good for you to know at this point that Daniel has been serving in Nebuchadnezzar's court for over 30 years. As a young man, 
He was captured from the capital city of Jerusalem, taken into captivity in Babylon, and he's now three plus decades into serving in the court of the very man who likely killed his family and friends and who he has been enslaved to for 30 years now. That's the situation for Daniel. But he does the brave thing. He speaks truth to power, and he tells King Nebuchadnezzar, this dream is actually about you. You're the tree. God's going to cut you down. And so the prideful king receives the threat of humiliation. That's the setup. Now, the second half of this chapter is what Lewis read just a few moments ago. And as we talk about it, we're going to ask one very simple question. Can humiliation be redemptive? Can humiliation be redemptive? And we're going to hit this from a couple different angles. The first angle is talking about how pride dehumanizes. If you're the kind of person that takes notes, you're welcome to write these down. Pride dehumanizes. And then part two, but humility restores humanity. Pride dehumanizes, but humility restores humanity. Okay, you might find it helpful to have the text in front of you as we look at it. You don't have to. You can just listen if you like. But if you want to pull out the Bible and look at Daniel chapter 4, you'll see a few things there. Let me start reading in verses uh, 29 and 30. At the end of 12 months, after he's received this dream interpretation, so he's a year out from hearing this bad news from Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of the palace of Babylon And he's sort of saying to himself, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? What's he doing? Well, he's just a little bit of self-congratulation going on. I built my own tree, and it's glorious, and it's incredible. And to be fair, lest we be too judgmental of Nebuchadnezzar, if you were him, I, I would bet good money you would say the exact same thing, because he has evidence for what he's saying. In other words, this is very different from the kind of self-esteem, self-confidence movement that we're all living in. Let me go on a quick rabbit trail and tell you about that. We are about four decades into what you could call the self-esteem movement. It began in the 1980s, and it's the social experiment where we are seeing what it's like to raise up children into adulthood, all the while telling them that they are great, even if there's no evidence to support that claim, (laughs) right? I am living in this, so are you. We'll see how it goes. That is not what is happening to Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't grow up with his parents just telling him he's great. He actually has done amazing things. If there is a throne at the top of the world, the person with the most money, the most social and cultural influence, the most political influence, the greatest military might, like if you just go through all the different categories of ways someone can be successful and powerful, Nebuchadnezzar is number one in every category. If there's a throne at the top of the world, he is sitting on it. And so there's a little bit of self-congratulation going on. Now, this is what that does to him. That kind of pride that wells up within him causes him to lose his humanity, or we might say for his humanity to be diminished. Here's what happens. Verse 31, while the, voice, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. The voice from heaven goes on to say that you're going to be driven out of the city and you're going to live like a beast, like an animal in the wilderness. And this happens. Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. He leaves the capital city of Babylon. He goes and he lives in the fields. 
His fingernails grow out, his hair grows out, and we aren't sure exactly how long this lasts. It says seven periods of time. It could be seven years. That would be likely. And uh, he is experiencing what scientists have later termed clinical uh, lycanthropy, clinical lycanthropy. This is a real psychosis that exists today. I think the most recent case was documented in 2016 where a human being no longer believes they're a human. They believe that they're an animal and they begin to live like an animal. Now, is that what Nebuchadnezzar experienced on his own or did God specifically bring it into his life? The text is a little bit unclear, but either way, Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. He thinks he's an animal. He's living in the wilderness. What we are sure about is that the words from Proverbs 16, verse 18 are coming true in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. The point is that pride dehumanizes us because we were made to bear God's image as his vice regents in the world. We said that just a few minutes ago. And here the king is experiencing a physical and psychological dehumanizing. Think of it this way. What was already true inside of him is now being manifested on the outside of him. The kind of prideful, monstrous, beastly, animalistic spirit within him that he has given into because of his success and his pride is now being manifest outside of him. The outsides now match the inside. And as we read this, it's probably worth pausing and just asking ourselves a kind of diagnostic question where we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, well, (laughs) what kind of monstrosities live inside of me? What kind of beastly, animalistic pride is inside of me that if it were made manifest on the outside would be utterly humiliating? This is the definition of humiliation, by the way. When some inappropriate inner secret is made public and known. Humiliation is very different from being falsely accused. If, you, if someone falsely accuses you of something that you didn't actually do or say, that's not humiliation. That's called injustice. It's just as uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable in a different way. Humiliation is with something that is true about you, that you have sought to keep secret and protect from the world, is then made public and known. Synonyms for humiliation would be things like embarrassment or mortification or shame or disgrace. And so what we see happening here is in Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation, it's his pride that has diminished his own humanity. And so I ask you another question. Of what are you most proud? Just think about it. All of us have one answer or maybe a number of answers that immediately pop into our mind. What is the thing you are most proud of about yourself? Is it your career? Is it your family? Is it your skill or your talent or your beauty or your sex appeal or your intelligence? I mean, what is it? There's something, right? The thing that you are most proud of about yourself. That thing I offer to you may very well be one of the most dangerous things in your life because it's the thing you're best at. Pride dehumanizes. And it not not only dehumanizes the self, listen, it also turns outwards and it dehumanizes other people. Your own pride impacts the way you view other people's humanity. It's interesting, when Nebuchadnezzar first tells this dream to Daniel, Daniel responds with these words. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. 
In other words, Daniel's counsel to King Nebuchadnezzar as he shares this dream is to say, look, if you change, maybe, maybe you'll be able to avoid being cut down like a tree. And the way you could change would be to stop oppressing people, <laughs> to actually show mercy to others. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's pride did not only diminish his own humanity, it diminished everyone else's humanity in the empire as well. Think about the oppression of Babylon. Judah was not the only people they had conquered. Babylon had conquered, and you might even say devoured, nations and tribes and peoples from all over the known civilized world at this time in history. And those people had either been killed or enslaved. The oppression of Babylon is one of the defining characteristics of the known civilized world at this time in history. And all of that is coming from Nebuchadnezzar's pride, which views other people as less human than himself. And our pride does the very same thing. We're just not nearly as powerful, so the effects aren't nearly as severe. But our pride sees the self at the center and other people only in relation to ourselves. In other words, I'm the main character of my story and you all are just side characters in my story. And all of us are thinking that way. All of us tend to see each other as peripheral characters in the story in which we are the main character. This plays out in our marriages where your spouse is part of your story, but you seldom think of the reality that you're actually a part of their story too. It plays out in our families with parents and children where we see our parents and our, or our kids or both as just kind of influences in our story. Then we go sit in therapist's office and talk about all the ways that they've hurt us, not thinking to ourselves that our family members could all do the same thing about us, right? Or we think about our neighbors. Are your, question, are your neighbors as real as you? Are they? Are their thoughts and their feelings and their experiences every bit as real as you are? I mean, they might be okay neighbors to you, or maybe they're great neighbors to you. What kind of neighbor are you to them? What, is it, what, what must it be like for them to live in the neighborhood with you as a neighbor? I wonder what that experience is like. What about strangers? Are strangers merely extras in the movie where you are the main character? Or are they real too? You see, pride dehumanizes because at its core, pride rejects the source of humanity, which is God himself. C.S. Lewis put it this way. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. Pride dehumanizes both the self and others because at its core, it's a rejection of God who gave you the very thing you're proud of. Now, if pride dehumanizes, what's the flip side of that coin? Well, humility restores humanity. Think about it this way. We're back to the text. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. At the same time, my reason returned to me. For the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor, they also returned to me. And my counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And, very interesting, still more greatness was added to me. So, in Nebuchadnezzar's humility... This moment where he looks up towards heaven and acknowledges that he's actually not king, that God himself is king, then his humanity is restored to himself because, listen, this is like a good working definition of humility. Humility is a kind of surrender 
where you admit that your embarrassment and your humiliation and your shame are just and right. And you stop fighting them. You stop fighting humiliation and you embrace it. You choose smallness on purpose. You choose to acknowledge God. This is sanity. I'm I'm convinced that sanity and humility are the same thing. They're really just two different words for the same thing because they're both pointing to being aligned with the grain of the universe. Humility reorients you to God and to self and to others in the world in a sane and realistic way. And if you are looking for an example of what that looks like, you actually don't even have to look outside the story. You don't have to look any further than the person of Daniel in this story. Think about Daniel's humility in this story. Think about the humiliation of having your nation and your people and your tribe conquered, beaten in war and then enslaved and carried off into exile. Think about the humiliation of being someone who's a God follower, but spending your entire life, I mean, not just career, but life serving in the court of a pagan king, serving somebody else's agenda, an agenda you don't believe in, right? Think about the humiliation that Daniel has experienced over and over again in being this kind of person, this small, humiliated minority in this vast, powerful empire. And think about how he embraced it and did not fight it. He's 32 years in to working for King Nebuchadnezzar. And when he first hears this dream, here's what he says. And I think this is actually the most shocking sentence in the entire chapter. I think all the stuff about Nebuchadnezzar thinking he's an animal, it's weird, but that's not the most shocking part of the story. This is it. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. In other words, when Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel this dream about his tree getting chopped down, Daniel says to him with compassion and empathy and even loyalty, the only people who are going to like this dream are people who hate you, are people who are your enemies. They're the ones who are going to like this dream. In other words, Daniel's saying, I'm not one of those people. I don't hate you. I'm not your enemy, which is crazy because Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely his enemy and is absolutely to be hated. He's a terrible human being. Why does Daniel not hate him? Why does Daniel not see him as his enemy? Why is Daniel siding, choosing to side with Nebuchadnezzar when he's getting the very thing that he by all right should have wanted for 30 years? And you got to imagine, Daniel goes to bed each night. And what, is, what would his natural prayer be every night? Dear God, thank you for preserving me for another day. And by the way, would you please judge King Nebuchadnezzar for all of his wickedness? Please help him get what's coming to him. Please help him get what he deserves. And here, Nebuchadnezzar finally gets judged. He finally gets what he deserves. He gets what's been coming to him. And Daniel doesn't rejoice. He does not rejoice over the downfall of his enemy. This is what it looks like to love your enemies. You want good things for them. You do not want them to be judged. You do, you do not want them to fall, even if they deserve it. Now, that's the invitation of the text. And if that feels like too much to you, I agree. It feels like too much for me too, because I want all of my enemies to fail. <laughs> Don't you? They're terrible, aren't they? <laughs> 
this is too much for me, and I would imagine it's too much for you as well. You think to yourself, I can't make that shift from pride to humility. The gap is just too big inside of me to make that big of a move. I could try really hard, and I could try to muster up as much humbleness as I could, but then, knowing myself, I just end up being proud of my own humbleness, right? At least that's how I work. In between pride and humility lies humiliation. That is how you bridge the gap. That is how a prideful person becomes a humble person. If you would like to be a humble person, the pathway that you are invited to in this text is the path of humiliation, which nobody wants, right? How will you survive humiliation when it comes for you? How are you, how are you gonna bear to embrace such embarrassing smallness in life? Well, listen if you can. There's a way forward, and it's this. Think about the God who humbles you, the God who humiliates you, the God who reminds you of your smallness. It's the very same God who himself chose to be small and to be humble and to endure himself shame and humiliation. Think about the humiliation of God in Jesus. Maybe you've never considered it this way before, but listen if you can. Think about the humiliation of the incarnation of God in Jesus. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, becomes a naked human baby. It's pretty humiliating. And then that naked human baby is placed in a feeding bowl for animals. Further humiliation. Then that child grows up to be a refugee who has to flee infanticide to get to Egypt. And then that child grows up as the son of a blue-collar worker in backwater Nazareth. And then that child grows up into an adult and serves as an itinerant rabbi who is not recognized by the rabbinical establishment as a legit teacher. Further humiliation. And then think about Jesus' arrest and betrayal by one of his closest friends in Judas. Think about his torture and the mockery that he endured. The life of Jesus is a life of moving from one point of humiliation to another from beginning to end, culminating in his crucifixion on the cross, where Jesus is humiliated with us and Jesus is humiliated for us. And the resurrection on the other side of the cross and the death of Jesus is the vindication of Christ's humiliation. The resurrection, listen, the resurrection makes the humiliation of Jesus a redemptive thing. It wasn't on its own, but the resurrection makes the humiliation of Jesus a redemptive thing. Jesus humbles himself in an ultimate sense on the cross, and then in an ultimate sense, the resurrection exalts him. And after the resurrection from the dead, Christ ascends the throne to heaven, the actual throne. And therefore, in Jesus, if your life, listen, if your life is all tangled up in Jesus, meaning you are bound to Jesus, You've united yourself to him in baptism and you are finding him as the source of your life. If your life and Jesus' life are all bound up together, then the humiliation of Jesus, which leads to redemption, actually becomes true for you too. And your places of humiliation can counterintuitively become places of redemption. Your humiliation can in fact be redemptive in your life, which is why Jesus can get away with saying stuff that he says in Luke 14, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So, as we conclude here, the invitation of this story in Daniel as part of the larger story of God's work in the world through Jesus is to humble yourself in Jesus. Choose humility in Jesus. And when you do that, you actually become a human being again. 
your humanity is restored in Jesus because you start recognizing that your tree, to use that metaphor, more metaphorical imagery, belongs to God and not to you, and you don't build it yourself. You receive the tree instead of building your own. And just as Nebuchadnezzar received a greater kingdom after he accepted and embraced his own humiliation and humbled himself before God, so you and I receive a greater kingdom than anything that we can build with our own hands. If you need a a, a visual image of what this looks like, look at the cover art you received on the front cover of the liturgy. We don't choose these images at random. What you see here is a tree that has been cut down many times and then given the opportunity to grow back many times again. And this repetitive cycle is the shape of our life in regards to pride and humility. When we swell with pride, God in his kindness will chop us down. And he does this because he loves us. And then we are invited to begin to grow again, but in a new way, to grow in him in a humble way. This repetitive cycle is the shape of our life in regards to pride and humility. And when we become more human in Jesus, then we are able to turn and to dignify the humanity of other people. This is why followers of Jesus, above all other people on planet Earth, should recognize and celebrate and dignify the humility of all other people. Listen, especially those who fall. This is why followers of Jesus can become the safest possible people on Earth for other people that have failed. This is why we do not cancel people who suffer a great fall. This is why we have to give opportunities for people to be truly forgiven and return to the fellowship of the church even after they publicly fail. Where will those who have been humiliated turn if they can't turn to the church? Where will corrupt politicians go? Where will former porn stars go? Where will bankers who have embezzled money go? Where will school dropouts go? Where will people who are socially unacceptable because of their public humiliation go if they can't go to the church? Later in the service, we're going to be invited to the Lord's table, to the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, the Eucharist. This is a table of humiliation. What we remember together every week at this table is how Jesus himself in his body was publicly humiliated and broken and died. And you're invited to come to this table, not with your pride and all the things that you're good at. And you're good at a lot of things, it's true. But that's not the self that you bring to this table. No, you bring your humiliated self to this table, your needy self, the self who does not deserve to be accepted. And you bring that humiliated self to the God who was humiliated for you, and you find to your astonishment and joy and wonder that you are welcome and you are accepted here. And in that act that we rehearse together every week, every every week, we are reminded together that this is to be our posture towards all who have failed in our city. And the hope is that as the months and years go by, that the empty spaces in the pews and seats around you, even here, literally, in this physical room, this is not a metaphor, y'all, this is real, that the people here in Richmond who have profoundly and embarrassingly failed and have been humiliated would make their way here and find in here that their humanity is dignified and restored in Jesus by our hospitality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the way that you were humiliated on our behalf and the kind of welcome that you therefore can extend and give to us even in our places of humiliation. Lord, would the most embarrassing and shameful and humiliating places of our lives be made redemptive by you in your cross and in your resurrection. This we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.